thought I better take this opportunity to talk about something that I, I got a little bit bothered about last week. I did spend several days with and without either water and electricity or and or any and all. It was kind of confusing. But I, I somewhere pulled up either on the internet or one of the newspapers, and the first thing I see is this article, or actually it was written after, I guess, a radio interview somewhere by Abbott, accusing the electrical problem we had on the fact that wind turbines failed. And to this point, he was correct. There were a number of turbines that froze in our state. It got so cold. I was six degrees, five degrees, and they they didn't work. Well, why didn't they work? They have the option. They work in Minnesota. They work out in the Arctic Ocean some places. They we opted not to winterize our turbines, and it's just a decision that the companies make. So, number one, don't blame the machine. Blame the operator. Number two, and most fascinating of all, as I find after a heck of a lot of digging through, found out that they were actually depending on, let's pretend it was the normal winter we always have, we only depended on 7% of our electricity to ever come from turbines in this state, and we've got a pretty good number of turbines. So put two things together. First, we only was, you know, if we lost 7%, we'd have easily worked around it, number one. Number two is we didn't make them so they could work in cold weather. It was an option that the companies that run them, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, the government says, oh yeah, you're supposed to winterize our electricity if you want to. You don't have to. Well, they didn't. In this interview, I didn't get to see, I only read, that in actuality, natural gas plant outages were really responsible for the majority of the entire shortfall. But even more importantly, the blackouts were a systemic failure of our energy infrastructure to cope with severe winter weather. We just didn't prepare for it. So actually, we shouldn't even be blaming any one uh, generation source for making our electricity, whether it's wind or natural gas or coal, which we almost aren't using in Texas. I think one's left. We have got to get serious about making investments to protect our energy infrastructure from a wide range of threats. You know, most Everybody I know in Texas that's in the political business bury their head in the sand when you start talking about weather and climate change and global warming. Folks, as cold as it got, I think I did, I know I did this last week on the show. This entire situation was because of climate change. Go look up or read, listen to my article from last week, or look it up in any responsible science magazine. The cold we got was from the hot, where it shouldn't be, up in the Arctic, pushing this weather down more than it probably has in if forever, if not if forever, at least until recent times. Yes, and we knew it. Matter of fact, it was even, they were warned as much as two weeks before that it might be one of the biggest quote-unquote Arctic vortexes to ever reach this far south. And none of us, at least the states and most of the people in the political world, didn't do a thing about it. The utility companies want to minimize its cost of supplying electricity. So a source that generates a lot of cheap power has considerable value. 
Although wind isn't expected to contribute much to reliability because its output obviously depends on the weather. It is a super very cheap and clean electricity source a lot of the time. As an analogy, let me quote a little paragraph from Benjamin Leibowitz. He's a writer. I don't know if he's with only the Express News or where, but I just liked his analogy, so we're going to borrow it from him. Imagine that your home has rooftop solar panels and a backup diesel generator. You like your solar panels because they generally reduce your electricity bills and make your electricity consumption a lot cleaner to the environment. If the grid has a blackout, it's nighttime and your backup generator breaks. Isn't it kind of foolish to blame your solar panels for the lack of power? You never expected them to provide electricity at night anyway. In contrast, the entire value of your backup generator, folks, which is expensive to run, is predicated on its ability to supply power during a rare blackout. Then the fact is that it failed is a huge disappointment since it didn't provide the type of value you expected to receive. However, it's certainly not sensible to blame the solar power panels that are not working at night because they weren't supposed to be producing energy at that time anyway. So to get back to this just big cold snap we just had, each generation resource has unique pros and cons, but virtually all types of generation failed to cope with this particular most recent extreme cold here in Texas. Wind turbines did freeze up. Natural gas plants could not get fuel as gas wells froze. And outdoor equipment failed at the coal mines, gas, and even at the nuclear plants. So Abbott's rap on the uh, turbines, uh, wind turbines, were just because he doesn't happen to like green energy. I think he's got all his money put up in petroleum and oil somewhere. I don't know. But anyway... All of these energy infrastructure components operate just fine in places with much colder winters than we ever get in Texas. The utilities and energy companies take the steps to cold-proof their assets. We just didn't do it, folks. Just to save a buck. Well, it's not going to save. It's going to cost us all a lot of buck. So our utility companies, from now on, the government just couldn't say, well, take care of them if you want. This is a source that we all depend on and depend on in the easy times as well as the bad. It should be a law. I know there's a bunch of people out there, well, we don't want the government telling us what to do. Well, I bet you did in the last four or five days because if they'd have done what they were supposed to do, you wouldn't have been out of water. We wouldn't have had a few people freeze to death. We wouldn't have lost hundreds of homes and I think thousands of apartments across the state because they were building fires to try to keep themselves warm. I guess what I should stop here and just do is, I guess what I should do is just stop here. Quit pointing fingers and instead make the laws uh, specific to upgrade the, the resilience of the Texas energy infrastructure and there's no doubt down the road that the benefits are going to outweigh the cost. The actions we take now are going to protect us here in Texas and all across the country against the threats of extreme summer heat, hurricanes, cyber attacks, super cold freezing weather, all of which is, is in the forecast to become more and more common as the weather and the climate changes. We need to get a grip. 
Now let me uh, kind of lighten up the load a little bit. Same sort of uh, information, though. This is a, a energy source that, that I haven't mentioned. And, and in, in certain parts of our country, in certain, certain parts of the world, it is and will become more and more important as time goes on. The heat beneath the earth represents a vast repository of energy that in principle could provide a good amount, a significant part of our energy needs. In some places, geothermal energy is easy to get to and is already being exploited. Just as an aside, in case you don't know, when President Bush lived up here in uh, north central Texas, one of his sources of energy was geothermal. California and Nevada actually already operate dozens of geothermal electric generating plants. Ideal example, in Boise, Idaho, it heats 92 of its biggest buildings with the river of hot water flowing just 3,000 feet below the city. In total, the U.S. produces enough geothermal electricity to power more than a million homes. But at this point in time, all of these examples make use of a relatively rare local features here and there that are not available just everywhere in the country. As a result, geothermal energy has generally not been viewed as being able to play a major role in our alternative energy as we transition from fossil and dirty fuels to cleaner and more renewable energies. A number of experts around the world happen to disagree with this assessment, though. That's where I found this. To a fair extent, due to the deep drilling techniques and knowledge about underground formations developed recently by all means, interestingly, by the oil and gas industry during their recent fracking boom. This new knowledge we learned in the fracking boom, okay, is actually going to allow us to go down where there's extremely hot water, down two to three miles down underneath most anywhere. Remember, folks, geothermal's there. It's not exactly renewable, but it sort of is. It's been going on for millions of years, and it's clean. All it is is hot water and a lot of pressure. It's just not kind of a moment of, of the way this works. Deep geothermal can either access extremely hot water, super steam, that exists down at those depths on a regular basis, or water can, can be injected into those super, super hot rock areas, which is a technology known as enhanced geothermal systems. It's an enormous untapped potential. Enormous. A 2019 report by the U.S. Department of Energy says that by 2050, geothermal could produce as much as 8.5 or 9% of the United States electricity as well as direct heat. Do you realize in areas where you're getting to geothermal, the house can be heated directly. You don't have to make electricity first. You can skip that. You just have the, the steam or the, the uh, heated source come up and circulate through your home or your entire office buildings or whatever. It, it doesn't have to be changed and regenerated. It's there. So even though we don't talk about it much, 2050, folks, not for me, my age, I guess, is not just around the corner, but it really is. And geothermal will probably be a really important part of, well, we'll call it so-called all of the above future energy strategy as we get out of the dirty energy business.
And for a short, what I call good news for the end of this part of the show, I'll kind of throw this at you real quick because we are a part of it. This little diatribe I'm going to do has to do with the fact that we are indeed going to have to at least limit our CO2, but it's going to be with us for generations. So here's sort of a, I I guess, an uplifting thought. If we can just sort of stop it in its tracks in the next decade or so, recent analysis takes into an account, I want to use the word, the dynamism of the Earth's natural systems, which could actually reduce atmospheric CO2 content if we just get it to a halt point, Joe, because of the huge carbon absorption capacity of our oceans, our wetlands, and our forests, provided we take care of them. The key requirement here is to drastically reduce the emissions so that these natural systems can get a grip and take over. More than 100 countries have pledged to get to net zero emissions by 2050, an optimistic point, but certainly possible. We are now joined again, incidentally. We're back in the Paris Accord. That means they will emit no more carbon dioxide than is removed from the atmosphere by such actions as restoring forest. On board right now is the UK, the whole area, Japan and Europe. And now the United States is back to joining the club. Climate models show that a global temperature rise of about 2 degrees, that's Celsius, over the pre-industrial period would lead to global yeah, things are just a little rough. Calamities that could uh, include even more heat waves, flooding, mass displacement of people, super cold Arctic airs moving down. The world has already heated up about 1.1 degrees, and governments have committed to restrain the rise to less than one and a half. This is part of the Paris Climate Agreement. Now, if we can get them to hold on and we can get us Uh, to get off of our tushes and get going, we have a chance to really make this place at least as good, if not better, than it was when our parents and their parents left it to us. 